and thanks for listening to the Adulting is Easy podcast. This is Lauren, and I manage the Adulting is Easy blog and podcast, which can be found at realadultingiseasy.com, among other places uh, for the podcast as well. I'm joined today by Chris Dumont, the money sensei. He's a 30-something working professional who has a passion for financial literacy. He shares his personal experience with overcoming debt and building a retirement nest egg to help you retire while young enough to still enjoy life on his site, moneysensei.com, and in his book, Kicking Financial Ass. Chris has an MBA from the Schulich School of Business, and he lives in Canada. Thanks for being here, Chris. Well, thanks so much for having me, Lauren. Happy to be here. Yeah, I'm excited. Our goal for today is to make adulting a bit easier for our listeners by discussing a personal finance topic, since managing money is a big part of adulting. So today, Chris and I are going to discuss the eighth wonder of the world, which is, I believe, what Albert Einstein called it, or compound interest. But before we get into that, Chris, why don't you tell us a bit about your book? Sure. It, it's uh, I wrote a book called Kicking Financial Ass. Punch Debt in the Face, Invest for the Future, and Retire Early. It's a financial literacy book written for millennials. And the reason why I wrote it is because that demographic has had it quite difficult in the last, I would say, 10 years between the financial crisis in 2009 to today with COVID. Uh, You know, pre COVID, that demographic had saving average savings around $7,000. I mean, I'm sure it's worse now. Um, and, you know, millennials had a lot of student debt, lack of economic opportunity, and the job market was just very competitive. And this topic, f- personal finance, is not taught in, uh, it's not taught in school. So I thought it'd be good to write about it. Yeah, I do love your book. Um, It does a really great job of explaining what could be complicated or certainly intimidating concepts in a really relatable way. And I like that you told your own story as well and um, how you struggled with debt at certain times early on and how you were able to turn it around. And, And people that read that book definitely can learn from you. And I think I think you say in there multiple times, you know, if you get your stuff together, you basically can be done in 10 years if you want to. That's true. And I'm glad you enjoyed the book and found it useful. And I hope other readers also enjoyed the book, too. Yep. Um, so thanks for joining me today, Chris. So let's talk about earning money on money. <laughs> sure. So so compound interest uh, it's essentially making money on money. Uh, so as an example, let's say you invest in an index fund, which is a collection of stocks, and that investment goes up, let's say, just keep numbers simple, 10% in a year. So let's say if you invest $100 a year from now, it'd be worth 110 And then if you apply that same principle, you know, 10%, again, it's $121. And if you just continue that over the years, that can turn into a substantial amount of money. Now, if you now if you were to say invest five hundred dollars a month instead, that can equal a one million dollar stock portfolio in thirty years using that concept of compound interest. That's assuming ten percent a ten percent return a year, which. It's around what the stock market has averaged over the last hundred years or so. 
Um, and the, the, the beautiful thing is you don't have to be the smartest person to make a lot of money if you apply this concept. Um, you know, a lot of people keep money in their savings account, but savings accounts offer 0.01% or l- even less than that. You know, the stock market average is, like I said, around 10%. So, you know, I think uh, people should definitely have an emergency fund, especially during these times. But, you know, people should be investing that uh, into the stock market and using uh, compound interest to their advantage. Um, what keeps a lot of people from, I think, investing in stocks is the idea that they are going to lose money or they're, they're scared that they're going to lose money, right? They're probably like, hey, Chris and Lauren, that's an awesome idea. Um, but let's say I have $1,000 in my checking account. I don't want to take 500 of it, put it in the stock market, and then the next day it's 200 or whatever. What would you say to people that think like that? So, you know, I I also fall victim to that kind of thinking in the sense that it's just a normal human reaction. You put money in the market, you see it drop and you're like, well, I shouldn't have put money in the market then. But the the trick is to take emotions out of the process. So if you can automate your investment process in the sense that, you know, after every paycheck, maybe you set aside $50, $100, whatever that might be, whatever you think you can afford to uh invest away and just have that just automatically invested every month uh whether the stock market is up or down just uh automate that and that that uh that uh doing that over time take will add up and it takes the it takes the emotions out of the process because you know if the stock market drops you have the urge to sell if it goes up you have the urge to buy that's just a natural reaction and but you 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 want to buy low, sell high kind of thing. But um, but if you can automate it, then it takes that whole variable out of the process. Yeah, and study after study shows that we are significantly more likely to sell low and buy high. Yes, that, that is over very and over true. and over. We do that. <laughs> <laughs> I've done that. <laughs> yes. So, so yeah, it's uh, uh, yeah. I think it's normal, but you have to f- f- put in a system that can counter that uh, that urge. Yeah. Yeah. And I agree with you that automating it is good and trying to take the emotions out of it is good. The first big stock market tumble that happened since I have been an adult and had money in the stock market was this most recent one, March of 2020, with the drop during the pandemic initially. You know, when I when the first recession happened, I was in college, so I didn't have any money in the stock market. So this was the first one. And what I did, and it sounds silly, but I also am human and I have emotions and feelings and I really like money. So um, but I just didn't check my balances. So it came back. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, this will keep me from doing something dumb or I probably wouldn't have actually done anything because I have a pretty good understanding of historic you know historically what the stock market has done and so i probably wouldn't have touched it but i probably would have felt really bummed about losing you know probably a tenth or maybe 20 percent of my net worth within a couple of weeks yeah yeah i mean that can totally happen right yeah that's that's the thing um but i think yeah i think that uh another thing though to people may ask uh you know i don't have enough money to invest and 
I think that's also uh, a common uh, frame of mind is, you know, I have $500. What can I do with $500? But you need to start somewhere. You know, every every million dollar stock portfolio has started, you know, with $100. So it's just, again, like automating that. And over time, that can add up to a lot of my, um, that consistency, consistency will pay dividends over time. Um, and the best thing I think people can do is to start now, whether, you know, it's a hundred dollars, $500, whatever it might be. Right. And get some quick wins is yeah. how I, I tend to think of it. I, even just my first time where I like quote unquote invested was I had babysitting money. My sister was born when I was 13. So I had a lot of babysitting money at different points in my high school life. Uh, between her and her friends. And I think at one point I had $2,000. And I remember putting that in a CD. I think I got like 60 bucks on it or something. Like it wasn't a whole ton of money. But that was so fascinating to me because I was like $60. My parents paid me $5 an hour to babysit my sister, right? So I was like, and I didn't have to do that. I didn't have to do those 12 hours of babysitting to make that 60 bucks. So I think if you once you get started and you start to see money making money, it can be at, at minimum very rewarding and very validating. And at max, it can be a little addicting, I would say. That's true. Yeah, it's encouraging to see, right? Like I have a friend that she invested for the first time, I think, in April of this year. And not a lot of my, but it, she's, she's caught the bug, <laughs> you know, because she got in at a good time. Like you can't really time the market, but she got in at a good time. And, uh, and she, she now wants to invest more and more and more money. And so I, I think that's a good thing. Yeah. That's awesome. Has she read your book? She did. Yeah. <laughs> good, do good, it. good timing. Good timing on that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, so what else do you get asked or what else do you think young listeners so, need to know? Yeah, I, I think, you know, another question people, a common question people ask is, you know, how much money do I need to retire? And, you know, the, the, the thing is, that's a very personal question. Everyone's dollar amount is different and, you know, how much they uh, think they will spend in retirement is different. But, you know, there's a common uh, rule of thumb called the 4% rule. And the 4% rule states that you can withdraw 4% of your retirement savings each year without essentially touching what you've saved up or the principal. Um, and the reason why is the market on, on average goes up 10% a year. Obviously, it can go up like 50, it can go down 30, it can go, but on average, it's 10% a year. So you can essentially work backwards. So let's say, like, well, I need $50,000 a year to retire on. So you, if you divide that by 4%, then you need a $1.25 million stock portfolio. But then... Yeah, which for math challenge people is also multiplying by 25. True. Yeah. So there's the <laughs> flip side. Uh, so you save 25 times what you think you will spend in retirement. So if you think you will spend $50,000, then you multiply that by 25 and that's 1.25 as well. So... Right. Yeah. But that would sound like a big number to people until you say things like you just said, you know, $500 a month is 1 million in 30 years, right? That those are that's something that I think is right. achievable, especially with, you know, 401k matches and and things like that. 
Yeah, and I that's the thing. I, I think it's a very intimidating number, a million dollars, and that that's why I'm um, bringing that up is is an intimidating number. That's a lot of money, but I mean that's the thing. It can take as as little as five hundred dollars a month to get there in thirty years. I mean, if you want to retire earlier, you can accelerate that. If you want a million dollars in twenty years, it's fifteen hundred a month, which is a lot more. But you know if if you've cut back your expenses or you've increased your income, which I talk in the, in the, about in my book as well as how to increase your income through, you know, negotiating or through uh, side hustles or that sort of thing. Um, 1500 is also definitely doable. So I think, uh, yeah, I, I think that uh, you start small, but it adds up over time and can turn into a substantial amount of money and especially if you're using 401k matches you know that's free money from your employer which can help right. towards your savings right. like right? Yeah. you're booked how you did the you talked about both the, the u.s retirement options and the canadian retirement options as well yeah i, um, I, I also yeah. liked your i also liked your budgeting approach right so the idea that a lot of times when we talk about retirement we assume oh we it's really easy to assume two things especially when you're illustrating compound interest you say i'm going to save the same amount for x amount of time consistently and i'm going to spend the same amount once i retire right and both of those things aren't really true um you tip like if they if people do things like you said in your book they can make more money and if they also do some budgeting and really pay attention to what they're spending they can probably save more money and then also, we have also seen that for long retirements, for 30-year retirements, people spend a little less at the end because they're doing a lot less than they used to. That's true. Yeah, that, that, that's another thing as well is people's spending habits change over time. And especially in retirement, you know, when you're young, a little younger, if you were retired, yeah, you'll do more traveling probably and you're doing more things. But as you get older, you'll be cutting back. So, yeah, that's the thing. It's, it's, having a flexible budgeting system that can accommodate that and uh and take that into account what do you think people should start at from a savings perspective i think so i think it it depends on you know the common common uh common advice is 10 percent of your income and i would say that's the absolute bare minimum but uh Obviously, it's very personal. 10% might be a lot for some people. Uh, but I would say if you want to retire by uh, age, let's say 65, um, you you would need to save, I would say, like 20%. But if you want to retire earlier, you would have to up it to 30, 40. But it, it does depend. And the, the thing is, too, is people's definition of retirement. So... You know, and most people think of retirement as sitting on a beach and enjoying a pina colada or something, right? But you can't do that for you can't do that for thirty years or however long you might be retired, twenty years. And so, um, retirement. What I write about in my book is doing what you actually want to do with your time. So, yeah, you know, if you enjoy, if you love your job, yeah, maybe that's what you would prefer doing. So you don't really want to, re- quote unquote, retire, but if you're like, well, I like my job, but I don't love it, or I hate my job, yeah, you you want to you want to uh, find a better use for your time. So you, I would, you know, retiring early in that sense will give you that freedom. And so 
the more you can save, the faster you can retire. And so I would say most people probably want to retire in 20 or 30 years. I would say that or, or even sooner. So, um, so you would have to pick yeah, a savings. Yeah. Yeah. I had two podcast guests. One, um, Paul Benson, he was on from Australia and he wrote a book called financial autonomy and he calls it gaining choice, right? It's not retiring so much as gaining more choice in what you can do in your day-to-day life. And then um, Chip Munn, he came on and he talked about having your personal finance dream team. Um, But he wrote a book, um, it has a really long title, but it starts with the retirement remix, right? Maybe you take what was your full-time job and you make it a part-time job, right? Which is because you still like it, but maybe you just don't want to do it for 40, 50 hours a week. And then you have this kind of retirement remix where you're in this one foot in, one foot out of retirement thing. I definitely think there's a, a shift in people that retirement doesn't mean you become, you were a saver and now you're a consumer and there's this like line that you step over. Right. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Yeah. Like that. That's, you want, you, yeah. You want to retire early, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I do. And I, uh, you know, I like my job. I have no complaints about my job, but you know, I, you know, working a nine to five kind of limits what I can do outside of work. And so if I can, yeah, one day I could scale back my hours and then eventually transition to, uh, um, doing what I want to do full time or yeah, I haven't determined what that looks like yet, but I'm on track to retire. I would say, you know, I write in my book, um, people can retire in as early as 10 years, but my goal is about 15 years. And the reason why is I have some buffer there. If I was to raise a family, you know, life circumstances can change as well. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's where it gets a little bit, the numbers get interesting when you start thinking I'm going to retire maybe, and then have a family. Right. right. Yeah. Some people do that. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I know. I would like to, I would, I would like to have, I, I I guess it's still within the realm of possibility, but I think my husband and I are about 10 years out and I will be 40 then. And I don't think I'll be able to start a family at that point. So right. we're not, yeah. we didn't quite hit, we didn't quite hit it, but we shouldn't be too far off and we can be, we should be able to be around a lot when the kids are young. Yeah. That's the thing. Quality time with your kids. Yeah. Yeah. Rather than quality time with your grandkids. I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. So yeah, that's the thing. Like most people, um, they, in the traditional form of retirement is to work until 65 and then you can actually enjoy life really. Right. And I think, yeah, that, that mentality, I hope is changing and people can realize that life doesn't have to be that way. It definitely seems to be changing, but then again, you and I are probably in a lot of the same circles online where it definitely seems like everybody's thinking this way, but that's because that's where we put ourselves. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. But education is the first step. If people are listening to this podcast, you know, they're already hopefully on their way or they're starting to learn and they can, they can, uh, they can get on that path. Yeah. I mean, that's the goal. It it started with me teaching my sister who is 17, you know, teaching her about personal finance. And if she just knows a few things, whether it's 
maybe I should look into a Roth IRA as soon as I have um, you know, taxable income. I should definitely sign up for a 401k as soon as I can, or, you know, and then there's health savings accounts and that you can invest in the stock market in a bunch of different ways, whether that be in a retirement account or in a brokerage account and, and all of that. But um, I really liked, I really liked your book, Chris. I, I liked the, the parts we were talking about the numbers. And I typically, even though I am a finance major, I did pretty well in my in math in high school, but I really wouldn't call myself a math person. So sometimes even me who likes typically numbers, sometimes when I see these charts and these graphs, I get a little cross-eyed or I tune out, but I didn't have that in your book. I thought you did a really good job in all of the graphs showing, you know, just illustrating really well the point of compound interest. So I hope people do pick that up um, if they, if they want to know more about it. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, I really tried to simplify everything because it's it. This is the thing. One thing is there's so much information out there; it's very overwhelming. And two, you know, it's complicated. Like for a lot of people, it's complicated. And I, you know, and what's what's good information? What's bad information? So I really try to make it relatable to everyone, and not just with a background in personal finance or finance or math or whatever it might be uh like just people like everyone an everyday person can relate to and apply the principles to their daily life so transitioning from compound interest i have two kind of questions for you i guess sure the first is yes the numbers are important should you live outside the numbers too I, well, yeah, I would say, you know, you have to enjoy life too. And it's easy to get caught up into, I need to retire early. I need to save every dollar because every dollar can compound into whatever it might compound into. You know, I think it's like taking a step back a little bit and be like, look at the bigger picture. Like, yeah, that's important, but I, I still want to enjoy my life now. So it's really realigning my well, personally, it was realigning my spending habits to what I really value and spending money on things that are val- valuable to me. So to me, everyone's different, obviously. To me, it's spending money on family, friends, like going out, uh, quality time together, um, travel. I love to travel. So, you know, some of those things I'm not going to be cutting back on too much. And so, but then I'm cutting back a lot on things that don't really add value to my life, like having a nice car. You know, I drive drive a 2013 Honda Civic, but maybe some people, you know, maybe for whatever reason, having a a nicer car is more important to them, but, but it's realigning your spending habits to, to what benefits you and taking a look at the bigger picture. And yeah, numbers are important, but you know, we still want to live our life too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, Sometimes I see that on um, on Twitter, for example, and that th- it's like the spreadsheet guy, where you know, oh, that latte every day could be two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, but what if I really love lattes, right? Yeah. Or devil's advocate, Earl Grey tea. I love Earl Grey tea, right? Like, I would say go for it. Yeah, if you love it, go for it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's very, um, I will teach you to be rich, right? You recommended yeah, that remains at the, yeah, he's one of my favorites. Yeah. Yeah, you recommended that. I just finished it. So, 
Um, and then my other, so my second question follow up then is real estate. Yes. This is a topic that I will teach you to be rich, the simple path to wealth, other personal finance gurus. They're not big on real estate and compound interest is not so easy to explain in real estate. So I was curious if you wanted to talk a little bit about your thoughts on that too. Real estate, yeah, it's a different type form of investment. I mean, there's so many different ways to become, to retire and to retire early. And real estate is definitely one of them. Um, I would say that real estate is a little bit more hands-on, which, you know, some people prefer because it's a tangible thing that you can see. And, but, and some of the, some of the aspects of it is also very attractive. Like you can, modify a property to make it more valuable like do some renovations you can add another Mm. bedroom you can rent out the basement whatever it might be or like maybe the kitchen needs a reno and it's just old and you know uh you can do that or and there's certain tax advantages too with real estate but the biggest draw i think for people is that it's a leveraged asset so uh you're using borrowed money to purchase something and so you're not putting you know, if a house costs two hundred fifty thousand dollars, you're not putting in two hundred fifty thousand dollars to buy it. Like you're putting in whatever your down payment might be, ten percent or twenty percent or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And so, and then the hopes is that over time, that property will increase in value, and you're like, whoa, that two hundred fifty thousand dollar house is now three hundred thousand dollars, and I only invested twenty five thousand mm-hmm. dollars. So, I mean, you're up, right? So. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was explaining that to my sister. She was here over the weekend and I was explaining to her, if you buy a hundred thousand dollar house and it goes to a $200,000 house, that that $100,000 difference goes to the equity. Mm-hmm. And she asked me a good question and she said, okay, but whether you paid a hundred thousand for it or whether you put down money and then borrowed some from the bank, either way, you made a hundred thousand dollars on it. I was like, yes. However, right, if you would have paid $100,000 cash and it went to 200000 you doubled your money, mm-hmm. right? If you put $20,000 down, that's like five times as much money as that, you put down. So that's that where is, the leverage comes in. So I was explaining yeah. that to her. It's the power of leverage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a fan. You can leverage stocks. That That's the thing. You can use margining and you can do, use the same concept for stocks, which I mean, I personally wouldn't recommend, although I have done that <laughs> and it has not worked out too well. And, and so anyway, stock market is a little bit more volatile for one thing. And Right. Well, and if the yeah. value of your house goes down, you don't get a call from your bank for them to put, you need to put more money right, down. That is true. Right? You get a margin like, call with, with the stocks. stock market. Yeah. And yeah. then you need to put in more money. And so it's a downward, it can be a downward spiral. And you just keep yeah. putting in ba- good money after bad kind of thing. Right. Exactly. So I, yeah. I all, I agree. I think the only, the only way you really should use leverage for investing is in real estate. Yeah, I would, I would agree. I also give the one caveat is, uh, you know, the real estate market, you know, a lot of people believe it does go up, but there, there are circumstances where it doesn't always go up. Like, especially where I live right now, the market the market has been down over the last five years and substantially down. Like I would say the market's probably down 25% from the peak and there's no end in sight. Like it will continue to go down over probably the next few years. And mm-hmm. so 
the you know if you're leveraged yeah it, that works against you too in real estate although it's not as volatile but right. um over time that can also be uh, so if somebody had put 20 percent down five years ago they'd be out of the money basically your equity your whole down payment would be gone yeah so that's the thing like but at the same time, the bank's not going to be knocking on your door like, hey, you're underwater. You owe more than what you actually know how much equity you have. Or, yeah, the value has dropped below what home. Yeah. Right. But, and um, that will happen with stocks. Yeah. And, but, and, but you're still living in your house. And mm -hmm. you can still, if you're living in a single family house, you can get creative. Yeah. You can rent out bedrooms. You can, whatever it might be. So there's still things you can do with real estate if if the market does dip. Um, hopefully, yeah. I mean that's a great yeah. that's a great point. It doesn't it does not always go up. And anyone who lived through 2008, that is probably pretty obvious to them. But we are at the point where you know some people are that are turning 18, say right now. Like my sister is going to. In 2008, she was five. So that might not be as visceral of a reaction for her like the rest of us would have that remember that happening or people that live in an area like you that can see it because um, down here in our area, here in Florida, it's insane. Like there, people are putting nine, 10 offers on a house. House prices are going up and up and up. It's just, it's one of the weirder things to come out of this pandemic. I, I thought prices would go down. I didn't think they'd go up. So yeah, I, really I've, I actually on. have seen that. You know, I live in Calgary. Calgary is kind of Canada's oil center. It's kind of like the Houston of Canada. And yeah. just be given low oil prices in COVID. And so that that's why uh, real estate has dropped. But markets like Toronto, for example, or Vancouver, yeah. Yeah. the same thing, though. Even during COVID, they're hitting record highs in real estate, which to me is... Well, one thing is record low interest rates, which is helping with yes. that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's the demand is there though. And, you know, those cities are growing. People are attracted to them. It's a more diversified economy. So. Yeah, that makes definitely makes sense. Um, so is there anything else you want to tell listeners before we wrap up? I think we covered, I think we covered it. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks for joining me, Chris. Uh, managing money is a huge part of adulting and understanding that you don't have to earn every single dollar, that your money can earn money for you. That's really what personal finance is all about. I agree. So would you like to tell people how they can connect with you? And I'll, I'll put this information in the show notes as well. Yeah, sure. You can. Well, you can find my book at any major retailer, Kicking Financial Ass. And you can find me online on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at The Money Sensei. All right. I will put that in the show notes, just making a note. Um, and you guys can follow me um, on Twitter at Adulting is Easy. I'm also on Facebook. You can email me at realadultingiseasy at gmail.com. And you can show support at patreon.com slash adultingiseasy. Thanks again for listening, everyone. Hopefully, we've made adulting a little easier for you.